0: Of words I'm Scott Jones and I'm Bill War and bill Holy Week has descended upon us yes yes we had a great Palm Sunday yesterday I have a children's choir from our preschool and uh, they processed in we did right on King Jesus and clap your hands all you people and a um, well it's it's an Easter version of Jesus is a rock that I changed some of the words around and I made mean, it
1: liturgically appropriate
0: no <laughs> I don't I I think uh at my congregation liturgical appropriate is the least of our concerns. So Well I, It was fun and it was a good day.
1: It's it's because, you know, there's the option liturgically. Some churches celebrate the liturgy of the palms and some the liturgy, some the, liturgy of the passion.
0: Uh yeah, and actually it's long, it's well the Roman Catholic Church is the longest mass of the year. I
1: there's we do the liturgy of the of the palms and I noticed something a detail that I had eluded me before—that in Mark's account of the triumphal entry, Jesus tells the disciples, "Go get this donkey," and but it, and assure him that the the owner that it'll be returned. Matthew omits that.
0: Yeah, Luke does too. Yeah, it, it's, it's just, interesting. And it's a cold. And he has need. The Lord has need of that. I like Mark's gospel too because they do the triumphal entry. Jesus goes to the temple, looks around. <laughs> goes back to Bethany. It's very anticlimactic. Whereas in Matthew they go right into the cleansing of the temple and in Luke the his weeping over Jerusalem is inserted before he cleared, cleanses the temple. Yeah, it was interesting.
1: I was wondering why they, with the cult, I wonder is there something about the finality of of the rise of, of the going into Jerusalem that you know there's some, that, that he's not coming back or something like that? it just made it made me think like that really the gospels are less biographies of Jesus and more memoirs of the apostles about Jesus. I mean, he was the central figure, but there, there is a kind of accounting, um, a first person stylization
0: of the narrative. Oh, more, more. Yeah. And I, I think a theological stylization. Yeah. I, more than even a memoir. I, I think it's a, it's a purposeful theological stylization. I mean, Luke's gospel, you know, Jesus is the stoic hero, you know, going to his destiny. Uh, it's it's a it's um it's a very different kind of uh portrayal than Mark's gospel. Uh, so I think it's an interesting um uh, matter of fact, some people I read an article about this years ago, back when I was doing New Testament studies, uh that a article compared the trial of Socrates to Luke's passion narrative. There's some just really interesting parallels between the two. And just the I mean, it, it laid out the poss or put out the possibility that um yeah, then maybe Luke was somewhat influenced by that. I don't know. It's kind of it's an interesting thing.
1: Yeah, the other interesting thing is, you know, it, as we have – as New Testament studies is influenced by things like film studies and other kind of literary studies. Like, you know, people used to kind of like be dismissive of Mark. And now the more we know about – now that, like the way we do media and stuff is more episodic. And cinematic, Mark all of a sudden looks, oh gosh, he really knew what he was doing. They create a sense of immediacy. It's really, it's just interesting how we study those things, how the culture shapes how we view
0: yeah. things. Yeah, it is. Then I think it's true. And there's one other thing. I could have read a great 19th century dissertation on something, insight that never dawned on me before. Um, the last, in Mark's gospel, the last story before they go into Jerusalem is the healing of the blind Bartimaeus. And, you know, Bartimaeus is the son of Timaeus, right? Well, in the, you know, and the, the whole punchline of, of Mark, I think, at that, in that story is a blind man goes to Jerusalem seeing and understanding while the disciples are seeing men who go to Jerusalem blind. And um, Timaeus, the uh, – is that how you pronounce the – is that how you pronounce Sounds the Plato, good to me. Uh, Plato's uh, – the dialogue. Is actually that's kind of the theme of part one of the themes, many themes. It's a large dialogue. Is this idea of the difference between the visible and, and the invisible worlds, so what you can see and what you can't see? I don't know. See, I if I was a 19th century British biblical person, I could in good conscience write a book on that subject, but it's probably just accidental. But anyway, I like that. Well, you know, we talked a little
1: bit about talking about the this time of year. There's all these historical Jesus
0: <laughs> things on CNN. Yeah. I thought, you know. Yeah. I, so we thought. I actually, had a parishioner asked me about Constantine because apparently there was a PBS special. Todd talked about Constantine last week. He had a really interesting one. Not the
1: calls. one with Keanu Reeves, right? I know that movie. No, not that one. That's a pretty cool movie. It is kind of a cool
0: movie. No, different, different Constantine. You
1: yeah, know, I say it is interesting because you know this is you hear this term a lot: the Jesus of history versus the Christ of faith, Language. and and that is often uh, you know how the d- debate or discussion. And popularizing of academic stuff that these things often do, that it seems to be that that is at at the heart of of who was the real Jesus of history of the the real one that that we have access to through historical sources and who the church can make him be. This is the kind of Da Vinci Code sort of narrative right. that that right. there was a conspiracy that kind of made Jesus into this sort of simple minded sage Galilean into this you know, messianic, divine-like figure.
0: Yeah, and the, uh, I think, rather flawed, but uh, very popular premise of the Jesus Project is somehow you can look at the current Gospels as written and the scan information that we have from other sources, and somehow you can peel away all that, and as one of my professors said, uh, and then you have that moment. When after you've peeled away all the letters, or all the different sources, you're looking at the pure picture of Jesus, and uh, you know, I actually didn't laugh while that person was saying that. But the the idea of it, uh, uh, although I was invited to the special class that that person gave that lecture to, was a it was a select group only. And at the break, I didn't go back. Uh, so, uh, uh, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and so the school and the professor will be na- remain nameless, but. Uh, even as a uh, MDiv student, which I just think I told you who the, the school was anyway, but uh, I realized, well, there's something inherently flawed about that because, again, what criteria are you lo- using? You have to have certain presuppositions that this is in and this is out. Yeah. And, and I think it fails to take in a very complicated history, much of it which we don't know, much of it is speculation, is how – these oral traditions and what was some, you know some things were written down. We have hints of that, and that this kind of various pictures of Jesus came to existence, you know, in the first century and and by but by you know by the second century is already being circulated. The four gospels are already being circulated together. So there's a there's a lot of stuff that happens from um, you know the mid second century. I think maybe it's the first time we know there are all four of them are together. And then, you know, whenever the first record of Jesus began to be written down, although we do know, we know from witnesses, and there's not even a lot of uh, information. But, for instance, Ignatius of of Antioch uh, seems to make allus- allusions to both John's gospel and Matthew's gospel. It doesn't appear, as with the rest of the scriptures, He's he's quoting stuff from memory, and it's not clear if he's just paraphrasing why he's quoting from memory. Or if there's an oral tradition that sounds very much like Matthew or John, so there's stuff like that we we don't know. Uh, by the time you get to somebody like Polycarp, who's a younger contemporary uh, of Ignatius, we can already see that you know Polycarp's dealing with text. So you know that so that may be the critical time period there between 110 and 150 or 125. Our earliest manuscript, uh, the oldest. Uh, Fragment we have of a gospel or of a New Testament book is a fragment of Gospel of John, probably from about 125, and we're pretty sure it was written down. I mean, we we're almost positive it was written down before that. So, anyway, that's it's kind. Of, that's I'm just that's a long way to say uh, how the traditions that we even have, how the gospels we have, uh, they represent a very complex, uh, but I think probably a very rich uh, history of trans mission that uh you know what we have is what we have
1: yeah it's interesting too i mean i had a class his friend said to me i think like he's like i think what it was the oldest copy of plato's republic we have it's like it's like
0: oh
1: it's okay. uh, th- th- centuries and centuries and centuries oh. like, and he's like you know basically he's like these critical guys in new testament these are fetishists so the dates of the early but we do i mean that is the interesting thing though the new testament we do have more Copies, I think, close to the original
0: writings yeah.
1: period than like any other ancient. Any, any ancient there's nothing. I mean, I mean there might be like s-
0: there might be six copies of Herodias, for instance, and I think, uh, gosh, I forget the number. It's 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 a remarkable number, yeah, relatively speaking to the, to the New Testament. I mean, for instance, even stuff we say about Nero, you know, we act like we know, you know, what happened with Nero, but all that stuff is written down. Um, Sixty years
1: later yeah yeah yeah, yeah So it's, it's interesting you know i think um yeah it's it's it, it, this kind of makes the rounds again regularly it's it's funny you were talking about these criteria like with the jesus seminar you know when they would were meeting i guess i don't know if they still meet but they would do this game where you know they would have the scholars sit around and if if jesus said some, if if they're pretty sure he said it you put in a, a red Marble in a jar, and if if, like you know, (laughs) kind of should probably said pink, and then like, then it was like gray, right? If if you if you probably didn't say it, and black if you thought you absolutely didn't say it, but then it's interesting the criterion of the similarity. So the idea is like, well, you know, if it's something that sounds like a first century Jew, uh, too much like a first century rabbi, he probably didn't say it. But then if it's something that. It's, it doesn't sound like Judaism, It doesn't sound like like Paul or or, or the apostles. Then he probably said, and but then again, these these criteria work against each other because, well, it 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 you know it, it, Jesus is on some things. Why couldn't Jesus be in some things typical of a first century Pharisee or rabbi, and other things not? Nah, I mean, that's This is how history. In fact, oftentimes, unique historical figures are just like this, right? They they're right. they're they're contextual, and yet. Different from their context. And so there's, I, a lot of the times these criteria wind up, you know, yeah, it's, being it's, intentional it's, with it's,
0: each yeah, other. Yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's based on a bias. The other thing too is even, you know, what, what are we comparing Jesus to? For instance, we don't have, uh, for instance, the Pharisees. We only have two Pharisees from the first century who actually wrote anything. One is Josephus, and he's a suspect Pharisee because he was a suspect, a suspect Pharisee because it uh, he became one late. And then you may have heard of the other Pharisee that we have his written material, and that would be Saul of Tarsus who changed his name to Paul. Got so, a lot of, a so, lot of I mean, there are in the rabbinical literature uh, in the Mishnah and the Talmud there are first-century rabbis that are referred to, but you know, again, that's it's not it's, that stuff's not written down, and so there's a lot of suspect about it. Contemporaries, you know, some of the contemporary Jewish theologians, thinkers that I have talked to, um, have you know, or have heard give some talks. Uh, particularly Danielle Hartman, I think of the Hartman Institute comes to mind first, saying, you know, Jesus, Jesus got Judaism right. <laughs> you know, he, in some levels, Jesus, Jesus's critiques of Second Temple Judaism are not dissimilar to some of the latter rabbinical critiques of second century, or second, sorry, second temple Judaism. Um, again, the saying is the first temple was destroyed. The rabbis say the first temple was destroyed because they were not faithful. Uh, they did not follow the law enough. The second temple was destroyed because they followed it too closely, Hmm. which sounds very similar to something that Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount.
1: Yeah, it's really interesting too, you know, that Tim Keller, him, him who has who, where we he, he him who shall not be named.
0: Uh, yeah, you just keep, you're starting to slip him in a little bit. Well, I mean, it's, uh, it's irrelevant
1: to our thing. It's, I think uh, uh, yeah, I he think, had
0: this Twitter exchange. First of all, you got Tim Keller. Now you got Barry Mallow. I, exactly. like, I, I feel like my input into this podcast is limited. It's becoming him, more and more limited.
1: Him who <laughs> shall not be named. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you know, he and Rachel Held Evans got into this Twitter thing where Keller had said something like Wait a minute, they, Rachel. They
0: they they had a Twitter back
1: and forth? Well, I don't think Keller back and forth much. Oh, I think right. she kind of okay. piggybacked on him. Right. and Basically, Keller said something. Like, a Christian is someone who sees Jesus primarily not as teacher but rescuer or redeemer. He was a very subtle statement. I mean, he was saying that basically it, it's not enough to just sort of look at Jesus as a great moral teacher. that Actually, bound up in his very person is his, his – role as Redeemer, and she kind of came back, oh, call me, you know, she was kind of snarky. Like, call me old-fashioned. Wait, I, wait I, a minute, she was snarky. snarky yeah, I know, I know. Uh, that's hard know. to believe.
0: That's right. like the Babylon
1: Bee once said, uh, Rachel H- Held Evans admits in a moment of weakness to a belief she's not doubting. <laughs> 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 um, but, you know, uh, she kind of said, well, call me uh, old-fashioned, but I think a Christian is who someone who follows the teachings of Jesus, and they. Kind of, and he didn't really respond much, but a bunch of people got talking about it. But it's really interesting because I think at the heart of um the identity of Jesus is teaching and yet I mean how you construe that there's I th- there's this great um there's this great passage in in um Benedict XVI's book on Jesus and he talks about in the section I think it's on the Sermon on the Mount where he talks about um how Jacob Newsner's book um a rabbi following Jesus, uh-huh. which is basically Neusner who's an Orthodox Jew, who spent you know a lifetime in dialogue with with Christians. He's imagining being a rabbinical student, uh, you know, a young Jew actually following Jesus, and he has this section where he um, comes. He's imagining like he hear, he hears um, Jesus give this talk and you know, like a, S- a Sermon on the Mount type of talk. And then he winds up talking with his, um, one of his teachers at the end of the day. And he says this, uh, let us try, out, try to draw out the essential points of this conversation in order to know Jesus and understand our Jewish brothers better. The central point, it seems to me, is wonderfully revealed in one of the most moving scenes that Neusner presents in his book. In his interior dialogue, Neusner had just spent the whole day following Jesus. And now he retires for prayer and Torah study with the Jews of a certain town, in order to discuss with the rabbi of that place, once again, he is thinking in terms of contemporaneity across the millennia, all that he has heard. The rabbi, the rabbi cites from the Babylonian Talmud. Rabbi simile expounded. 613 commands were given to Moses: 365 negative ones, corresponding to the number of days of the solar year, and 248 positive commandments corresponding to the parts of man's body. David came and reduced them to 11. Isaiah came and reduced them to six. Isaiah came again and reduced them to two. Habakkuk further came and based them on one, as it is said, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Neusser then continues his book with the following dialogue. So the master says, is this what the sage Jesus had to say? I say, said, I, not exactly, but close. What did he leave out? Nothing. Then what did he add? Himself. This is the central point where the believing Neusner experiences alarm at Jesus' message, and this is the central reason why he does not wish to follow Jesus, but remains with the eternal Israel. At this, uh, the centrality of Jesus' eye and his message, which gives everything a new direction.
0: Right. And, I, and actually, I think that's something that sometimes is missed when you look at some of the early documents, the uh, documents from the apostolic age, for instance. Uh, you know, some of the most popular ones are very moralistic, like the Shepherd of Hermes. First Clement has a lot of concerns about morality, the Didache. But um, one of the things that's – what's the given is that Jesus is Lord. And in other words, it's it's a given that Jesus uh, was crucified dead and rose again. Now, what that lordship of Jesus meant, meant you know, I think you can um, – you know, you can see a variety of levels. This is – I'm using – all right, I'm using a late 4th and 5th century term here to refer to the 1st century, so that's wrong, but give him, give me that and I'll say, you know, you see all kinds of levels of Christology, I think, in the New Testament. And you also, you know, can see it in, you know, the the emerging varieties of Christianity that we see in the 2nd century literature. I mean, I would say that you have, relatively speaking, high Christology in the book of Hebrews. You have high Christology in the Gospel of John. You have high Christology in Paul's hymns. And um, and I think so when people are saying Jesus is Lord or Jesus is the Son of God, there's a lot of different levels of what people maybe be thinking about that. But what's the universal witness of all the branches of Christianity? And I would argue uh you know the community that 's represented in the Gospel of thomas uh and other books that you know we don 't conclude in the Christian canon is that was there something about this idea of jesus as mediator i mean even if in in the sense of if he 's the giver of gnosis he 's a mediator between you know God, the higher God, and humanity so I think this idea that there was a kind of uniformity about the the profession you know that jesus came he 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 you know taught lived was died. Was crucified, dead, buried, rose again. Now, again, the nature of that resurrection, obviously some of the Gnostic groups uh, of the second century later, you know, didn't necessarily go along with the bodily resurrection as, as apparently many of the Corinthians <laughs> had trouble with it as well. So what those terms meant probably was fluid as well. But I think we can say with the full wealth of conviction, to borrow a phrase at the late... Dr. Diogenes Allen used in one of his books, that the community that became Christians, the community of apocalyptic Jews who followed Messiah Jesus and then the Gentiles that were part of that community as well, and the community that survived and thrived after the destruction of Jerusalem, um, they believed that Christ or Jesus the Messiah – was in a profound relationship with God, and that He was the Savior of the world. That the Jewish Messiah was to be the Savior of the world, and that that's not that was something that they believed very early. Um, I mean, Paul treats it as a given.
1: Yeah, and I think one of the things that's unique, right, is that in, in the first century, right, everybody—Orthodox Jews, you know, people that are, you know, your your Pharisee types, your—I well, guess everyone would have—that that was messianic to a degree. Would have had room for two figures: the messianic figure and the suffering servant.
0: No, I don't think there was any vision for suffering servant in the first century. I think that's an innovation from Christianity.
1: Really, you wouldn't think in Isaiah
0: and all. I mean, and, No, I think. Well, I think most people probably read Isaiah as then as Jews read it now. It's Israel. Or it may have been the prophet Isaiah, or the, or the or Isaiah yeah, and, Babylon. A, a lot of people argue though that, that there's that, that so there's a singularity to it, or it could be Israel. But th- but there are, the suffering uh, Messiah is a late development.
1: Well, uh, that well, actually, I think that's unique. What I think is what's unique about what the apostles do is they fuse the figures. Like you, you would you would have a Davidic messianic figure, right. and then there is you know in certain apocalyptic literature this idea of, of a vicarious suffering servant, but they're not connected the way. That well, at least NT Wright argues this, so uh, he's a, he has a PhD in well, New no, but, I mean, what,
0: but what, what suffering figure in what apocalyptic literature?
1: Ah, uh, he's saying, Well, next podcast, I'm going to bring, I'm going to cite that, right. I'll bring the citations. But he's, but he has a lot of, I mean, he looks at his argument is that these by the first century, you can see these figures both in apocalyptic schemas, but you they're not connected, they're not, they're not connected, huh. they're, they're, but that what happens. Strangely, is that Christianity, the early apostles, fuse these roles and make the, the, the Messiah, the su- vicarious suffering servant in Jesus.
0: Right. I think the other way sometimes people talk about it, this is the way I tend to talk about it, is a, a crucified Messiah creates a problem. for, and, and the reason it creates a problem because they believe that crucified Messiah was resurrected. And vindicated so Right. That in, the, in the resurrection and the ascension is the vindication. So that creates a double problem. The first problem is that the Messiah wasn't supposed to get himself killed, and secondly, the resurrection was supposed to be everybody. There was not supposed to be. It was you know I think that's the great scene in, in the ascension scene in Luke or in Acts. Everybody's looking up, and you know because they think if he's gone, we're going too. They believed in a general resurrection. They didn't believe in a singular resurrection. Yeah. So that creates two. Theological problems, and it's part of what I think why Saul of Tarsus, you know, just saw this new movement as being just not only inconceivable but dangerous. Mm -hmm. It's that's why it took a encounter with the crucified, resurrected one um, for him to change his mind. And so, uh, I I mean, I do know there's different kind of apocalyptic figures and different things that are. Is the apocalypse of Abraham?
1: I remember saying that with Dale Allison, where Abraham like flies around on a magic carpet and saps all the centaus. No, nice gent- it's pretty cool.
0: No, I mean, yeah, there is. What is the Son of Man figure? I mean, that's that. Is that a is that a heavenly figure or whatever? But uh, and now I'm going to have to go dust dust off my pseudepigrapha for the next. I like, podcast. My, I
1: like my Jesus in a tuxedo T-shirt <laughs> it he, he has the, it's got an air of formality, but, but he still likes to party. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's
0: great. Uh, uh, Dear baby Jesus and your celestial <laughs> diapers. Uh to bring it back around. Uh, by the way, one of my I think I've said this in a previous podcast, one of my friends was invited to uh to be part of the uh, uh the Jesus Project, and after one says she said, I decided they weren't looking for the historical Jesus, but they had found the Napa Valley Jesus. I like that. <laughs> but this idea that again, uh, you can you can you cannot not believe Jesus was the Son of God, uh, or you can not believe Jesus of Nazareth was the Messiah um, and you cannot believe in a resurrection. I just saw a uh, survey that very few people in Great Britain believe in the resurrection. matter of fact, few people that are call themselves christians i think it 's not a majority of people who call themselves Christians believe in the resurrection, so you don 't have to believe that that happened. but the evidence the the, the literary or literature and the textual evidence is the people who wrote the New Testament based on the community, the early communities of Jesus, uh, the ones, you know, that formed in the decades after his crucifixion, they believed he did raise from the dead and they did believe he was the son of God. So that's my problem with the whole – they're using the very the very text that say this. They are, That's their only source to say they're not saying that. I mean to me, it ultimately, that's the whole circular intellectual fallacy of the Jesus Project.
1: It's really interesting. My friend Will McDavid wrote this. Um, he wrote this a while ago, but I think it popped up a Mockingbird site or something. And he was a really smart guy, but he talks about this piece called "The Trader King." He talks about Heidegger and how Heidegger and being in time basically says people things come to awareness when they're useful, which is why Heidegger thinks ontology is all about like he's not in like, and equipment and, and readiness to hand. He thinks of being as a fluid thing, not as a right. sort of. Then he says, um, says this. Jesus eschewed the world of use altogether. He neither multiplied nor subdued the earth. His one professional skill, carpentry, goes unmentioned for all his adult life, <laughs> and he simply did not do it in the way you and I normally do. When he did healings, he asked his patients to tell no one. He taught so that people may indeed listen but not understand. When he asked for advice on how to live one's li- when asked for advice on how to live one's life, he recommended entering back into the womb and being born again, or from above. <laughs> each equally impossible. Christ was knowingly and deliberately perhaps the least useful person to ever be famous. Yet the very uselessness it, is what makes stop him you there.
0: Yeah. I have a whole list of famous people that are useless. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: Yet the very uselessness is what makes him conspicuous. A magnificent warhorse is a conspicuous thing, but when a king processes into a city amidst loud cheers and acclaim, he would stand out far more if he were riding a donkey. His muddled teachings, impractical ethics, and hidden miracles create the greatest possible dissimilitude between himself and the normal ways of going about business in the day-to-day world. Like someone paid to catch fastballs holding up the number three with his fingers during a game, Christ's actions and gestures and very figures are absurd, out of place, and useless. But this endows them with an outsized potential to signify. Heidegger wrote that the narrowness of intelligibility and use corresponds to the breadth of what can be indicated in such signs. Christ's utterly alien way of going about things could only lead to two interpretations. The worldly criteria characterized by disappointment and contempt or the criterion of faith, which recognized an otherworldly manifestation breaking into the calcified matrix of the human world.
0: Hmm. And I think that's a beautiful uh, kind of essay that is creating a, a Jesus of faith yeah from 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 a variety of of texts and you could come up with a different version of what that jesus was and so I think one of the things that we' at least I'm not saying I won't speak for you is um to talk about the gospels being historical in any kind of modern way of talking history just yeah, it's not what not what I'm saying. In other words, for instance, you always get in trouble. Try to harmonize the passion narratives, for instance. Now, I think it's beautiful when you do the seven last words yeah, yeah, of yeah, Christ, yeah. but it actually, by doing that, you do violence to each version of the death. And each version of the death has a very distinct perspective that I think is theological or faith, not historical. Um, that doesn't mean that we can't say Jesus was crucified. That's, that we can say that that happened historically, but I think sometimes the naive apologetics approach to the Gospels uh, actually leads you away from the text. These are people; these are not neutral documents. These are not some sort of uh, "you are there" historical record. Well, they, no, ancient history was right, and I mean, ancient history
1: was—it's it's, Ancient historiography is, is a different kind of right. And if you—if you're a good historian right. in the ancient world, and you didn't know what Caesar said at this occasion. You were a good historian if you could make it up. And it sounded, you know, like, okay, here's what like, you fill in dots. That wasn't considered bad
0: history. Right. Yeah, history was rhetorical.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I also think, though, that like what part of it, what you're saying, right, is that this is like Luke Timothy Johnson's book, um, The Real Jesus, which is one of the best things in the modern historical Jesus sort of latest wave of literature the past couple of decades. He's basically like, separating the Jesus of history from the Christ of faith is impossible because all the earliest witnesses. So we're attesting to the story that they were, they were part of and born to, but they did it as persons of faith, and so you can't really. All our sources are from people convinced that this man, uh, his life, death, and resurrection, is the, is the center point of history. So you can't sort of if you if you can't bracket out their faith commitments yeah. from their testify testimony to the risen Lord.
0: Yeah, and I think uh, you and I come together and we know the same Jesus that uh, Paul of Tarsus knew. Yeah, the, the Jesus we know is a resurrected Jesus and, you know, that ex- existential really encounter, that faith encounter, that f- encounter of grace. And in some levels, it's it's through the eyes of faith that we we look at this person of Jesus. I do think it's extraordinary. I have been around some people who didn't like Jesus and and were – anti the, the person that was portrayed in the Gospels. But even though I think that, you know, in some levels, even the task of looking for a historical Jesus, uh, in some levels, the fact that some of these folks are trying to save and find a Jesus they can live with is a testimony to the attractiveness of this person who um, we, all, um, we all know and we do not know.
2: Some say he was an outlaw, that he roamed across the land With a band of unschooled ruffians and a few old fishermen No one knew just where he came from or exactly what he'd done But they said it must be something